Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, Reasons to Believe, and we'll open our Bibles to John chapter 3, verses 31 to 36, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message called, Reveling in Humility. I've noticed something about Christian maturity. You know, when our faith is still immature, we're obsessed with how we have done. But when we become mature in our faith, we're concerned with Christ and his glory. So the immature Christian asks, you know, am I doing well? And the mature Christian asks, has my image of Christ eclipsed my horizon? Am I overwhelmed with him? You know, a poem from an unknown author reads as follows. In Christ we have a love that can never be fathomed, a life that can never die, a righteousness that can never be tarnished, a peace that can never be understood, a rest that can never be disturbed, a joy that can never be diminished, a hope that can never be disappointed, a glory that can never be clouded, a light that can never be darkened, a purity that can never be defiled, a beauty that can never be marred, a wisdom that can never be baffled, resources that can never be exhausted. You know, eventually, as we grow in Christ, we come to see that that he's more magnificent than we had ever thought, and his stature just rises until it becomes all in all. It was the Apostle Paul that wrote about this phenomenon. In Philippians 3, verse 7, he writes, And whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he speaks of the reality that all things seem now to, to be like rubbish over against the knowledge of Christ. And so in Philippians 3, verse 10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. You know, in Paul's mind, all of life's experiences are now taken up in his union with Christ. When he suffered, he was reminded of Christ's sufferings. When he rejoiced, he was reminded of Christ's power in him. When he lost all things, he remembered how Christ had been humiliated in his incarnation. When he says he abounded, that is, all his earthly resources were richly supplied, he was reminded of Christ's abundance. That's what I mean when I say that his horizon had been eclipsed by Christ. All other things that might have once been important were now assumed into Jesus. You know, the last time I spoke from John chapter 3, we noticed that John the Baptist was suffering the decline of his ministry. Fewer and fewer people were showing up at his meetings as more and more people were leaving him and going over to Jesus. You know, at one time, the crowds were overwhelming, but now at this stage, the numbers are thinning out. And by the way, that's one of the hardest things a pastor ever faces, you know, when his church is in decline. A new church perhaps has begun down the road, and and everyone's talking about how great that new preacher is. It's very hard on the ego. It's as if he's facing his own failures every single day. But John 3.26 says that John the Baptist's disciples pointed this out to him. And they say, look, he is baptizing. And, of course, they're talking about Jesus. He was baptizing just like John, except he was doing a better job than John. And so they say, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. Look, our crowds are getting smaller. And then his response, a person, he says, cannot receive even one thing unless it's given from heaven. That in and of itself is stunning. And then he adds, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
Now, in context, John the Baptist realized that his ministry was unique. God had prepared for him to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And and once the Messiah came, he was to step back into the shadows like a supporting actor does when, when the star steps out onto the stage. But there is a sense that what he says must also be said by every single Christian. We believe that Jesus must take main stage. We believe that our mission is to help people see less of us and more of Jesus. Let me give you a personal illustration of that. You know, some time ago after preaching on a Sunday morning, I had one of those feelings that my sermon had been absolutely awful. I complained about it on the way home. I I told Kathy that my sermon had been terrible and, and that I wouldn't be surprised if not one soul showed up to hear me next week. Now, of course, all of that came out of my own insecurities. I wanted people to love my sermons. But I also wanted my wife to reassure me and to tell me that I was really wrong, that the sermon was great. I needed reassurances. It hadn't been that bad. But instead, she said nothing. I mean, we rode along in silence. Eventually, I repeated myself. I said, you know, that was a terrible sermon. And she said, you've got to stop talking about yourself. A mature man of God isn't concerned about himself. Wow, that's definitely not what I wanted to hear, but what could I say? I mean, the sermon had stunk, and now I was confronted with my own self-centeredness. That was not a good day. But as I amused my own bruised ego, I began to think, I mean, what if all I really cared about was what people were thinking about Christ? I mean, what then? See, I'm convinced that many of the relationship problems that we have, let's say, in church, or many of the marriage problems that we have at home, or many of the arguments we have at work, I mean, many of our own insecurities is because, now listen, we are competing with Jesus. Now, I know we don't think of it that way. I mean, we think we're we're competing with each other, but in actual fact, it's our unwillingness to allow Jesus to become greater and to be unconcerned with ourselves that has caused us to constantly ask, am I doing better than the other guy? I mean, we just can't get our heads around John the Baptist's statement. I must decrease, he must increase. Now, that's also the reason that so many of us struggle with envy or the wishing that we had the success in our lives that someone else has. It's also the reason that so many of us struggle with greed, this this unwillingness to give away some of our own glory to others. You know, some of us are consumed with the things we have lost in this world simply because we can't get our head around the idea that we should consider all things as dung over against the greatness of knowing Christ. I mean, what if what it really took for Jesus to become everything to you is the loss of much of what you now hold dear? Would you then say, well then, I have lost so much, but as long as Jesus begins to eclipse my horizon, I'm okay with that. Now, we've come to the end of John chapter 3, and John the Baptist just has told his disciples that he must decrease in importance and to watch as the crowds leave him and go over to Jesus. And now at this point, John, that is John the Apostle who writes this book, intervenes, and if you will, he reflects on the significance of what the Baptist has just said. So I'm reading John chapter 3, verses 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. 
Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So, let's start now with verse 31. Listen to it again. Verse 31 says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So please notice, John the Apostle is making a contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. How could John the Baptist compete with Jesus, asks John the Apostle. John the Baptist was from below. That is, he was a man who came from this earth. That's not to demean him, but it does identify him. You see, to come from the earth is to admit limitations. Now, we do know that that John the Baptist was a prophet, and, you know, as a prophet, he has something to say that, that indeed comes directly from God. But after that, he was still as human as we all are. See, there are a lot of things that John the Baptist simply didn't know. You know, for instance, he was clearly confused about the kind of ministry that the Messiah was to have. I mean, we read about that later on in the Gospels. I mean, the reason he didn't know about the nature of Christ's ministry is that he was from the earth, and that meant that his perspective is limited. He knew some things to be true, but he didn't know all the truth that there was to know about all of these things. In contrast, Jesus is from above, and therefore, he is above all. It's not just that he knows the full truth of all things, it's that he is the truth. That means that he can speak with supreme authority about all things. Let me then apply that. Truth does not arise from us. Now, that statement doesn't mean that we're irrational, but it does mean that the ultimate truth of God must come from God. It must come to us by a revelation from God, and Jesus is that revelation, and that's why he's greater than all. Do you ever wonder how your giving to Back to the Bible Canada makes a difference? Shona said Back to the Bible Canada continues to bring a drifting world back to God's Word. Don't ever change. Kim said, not only do I find the program enjoyable, it goes way beyond that to be a sustaining ministry for my husband and I, keeping us in touch daily with the scriptures. Mark wrote, I'm working through singing the Lord's song in a strange land. It is both encouraging and terribly convicting. I suppose that is what truth always does in our hearts. Jacob said the teaching of Dr. Newfeld is so needed. Thank you for not being afraid to tell us as it says. This is the tip of the iceberg as men, women, young and old tap into the Bible. Resources provided with your support. Thank you and please keep it up. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Look at it this way. We all have a Bible, so what kind of a book is that? Well, there are some liberal Christians who have argued that the Bible is only a historical record of human beings attempting to discover God on their own. 
You know, sometimes, say the liberals, the writers of the Bible are right and sometimes they're wrong. People did the best they could with the knowledge of God they had in the context of the limitations of their culture. So for liberal Christians, the the Bible is a record of human beings in the ancient Middle East reaching out to God, groping to discover what they might discover. But as interesting as that view is, at the very least, we should begin by acknowledging that the writers of the Bible make the exact opposite claim. One often hears them saying, thus says the Lord. You know, the writers of the Bible make the claim that that God is speaking through them. They have something to say, not just about God, but rather God himself is speaking through them. 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21 puts it this way. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, that's the claim the Bible makes. God himself is speaking in these pages. The Bible is the word of God. But in Jesus, something new happened. Look back at John 1 verse 14. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word delivered from God. John the Baptist knew this about Jesus. Jesus simply is greater than all the prophets in the same way as the word that a prophet spoke was greater than the prophet who spoke it. So, all right. The gospel of Jesus is a word that came from God, not from us. Truth came from above, not from below. That was the first point that's in this passage. Now, once we realize that about Jesus, we've got to move to the second thing. Our response to Jesus, who is infinite truth from God, demands that we submit to this truth. So listen again as I read John chapter 3, 32 to 34. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And I mean, the point here is that there is no limit in Jesus. You know, God has poured out his spirit on Jesus in a way that's not true with us. There's a power in Jesus. There's a wisdom and anointing in Jesus that's greater than has been seen before. I mean, so much so that in verse 33, it makes it clear that Jesus is tied to the entirety of God's revelation. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, which really means that Jesus so completely says and does everything that God the Father says and does. That's because he knows God completely. There's nothing about the Father that Jesus does not know exhaustively. And folks, that's incredible. See, for us, what we know about God is elementary. What he knows about God is complete and exhaustive. Now, that brings a mandate into our lives. We have rejected a consumerist approach to God's truth. So here's what we can't say. We can't say, on the one hand, I love it when the Bible tells me to be faithful to my marriage partner, but I don't love it when the Bible tells me that I should forgive my enemies. See, none of us are in a position where we might decide which command we should obey or which promise we should believe or which teaching we should agree with. See, you don't approach the Bible the way you approach a bowl of cherries. You know, you eat the cherries and you spit out the pits. 
No, no. In terms of the Bible, you've got to take it all. See, we're not designing our approach to spirituality. And if that's true of Scripture, how much more is it true of Jesus, who is the Word made flesh? As an example, go ahead with me to to John 6, verses 66 to 69. See, there it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that's exactly what chapter 3, verse 33 reminds us, that when we believe, we set our seal on this, that whenever Jesus speaks, he speaks accurately and truly about God every time. Now remember what we've said, first of all, that Jesus is above all, and now second, that whatever he says supersedes everything else in the world. Jesus supersedes every human opinion as well as our opinion. So let me tell you what people struggle with today. I mean, some people struggle with John 14, verse 6. They struggle with Christ's own words, that no one can come to the Father except through him, or that he's the only way to God. I mean, they struggle with Acts 4, verse 12. It says that salvation is not found in any other name, for there is no name under heaven given to men by which we might be saved. I know there are people who think, you know, that's just insensitive. That's exclusive. It's unkind to others. It's not politically correct to talk that way. And that may be, but it turns out that Jesus supersedes every human opinion on all things. Every other opinion on any matter is from below, but he alone is from above. Every other opinion is plagued by the limitations of human thinking, human culture, human observation, and human restraints. But his view is unlimited. He knows the truth of these matters completely. So when we come to Jesus, we have to accept his testimony, and it is this. God is truthful. See, you've got to bend the knee. You've you've got to submit your will and your intellect and your emotion and your desires to the testimony that God is truthful. So truth comes from above. It comes as an entire package that we must either accept or reject. You see, halfway measures or holding on to our right to believe or disbelieve, well, all of that is unbelief. Now, having said that, we now come to the conclusion that John the Apostle wants us to see. Our eternity depends on how we respond to Jesus. Let's reread verses 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice, first of all, that the Father loves the Son. That's an eternal theme. Never was a time when the Father did not love the Son. Indeed, for endless ages, before the world existed, the Father has been loving the Son, so much so that the love between the Father and the Son has been complete in every way. It lacks nothing. The love between the Father and the Son needed nothing added to it. And given that this is so, says John, the Father entrusted all things to the Son. You know, in the context of the wider passage, that means that he has entrusted our salvation into the hands of the Son. And then to verse 36. You see what follows? 
The difference between eternal life and the wrath of God depends on your response to the Son. Whoever has the Son, says John, has eternal life because eternal life and the Son go hand in hand. But how do we have the Son? Well, notice again verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see the difference? The contrast is between faith and disobedience. Because to believe is to obey. To disobey is to disbelieve. But that brings up an interesting point. If you believe in Jesus, you'll get used to bending the knee to him. When we believe, we obey. We obey because we believe. Now, all of that brings us back to John the Baptist. We saw that his ministry was getting smaller, and so in his words, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And we wondered how it was that a man would be willing to endure such an assault on his ego as to watch his ministry be diminished. And we might wonder also how we can endure any assault on our ego so that Christ becomes so large that he eclipses our horizon. See, I think the answer to that has everything to do with just how great you think you are and just how great you think Jesus is. And John the Baptist was there. His life was not his own. And and the truth of Jesus and his submission to Jesus produced in him a humble enough man to even allow his own ministry to be decimated. And that's what Christ called him to do. He became enamored with something greater than himself. And listen, brother and sister, you and I must do the very same. Become enamored with someone who is so much greater than you are. John, you had mentioned that, you know, that he needs to increase and we need to decrease. You know, that's not something that comes easily, even even for the person that's given their lives to Christ. It takes time, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. I think it's, um, it's the project of a lifetime. Uh, I can't think of anything that's, uh, that's more important to how we should live our life. You know, say to God, no matter what else happens, give me this exalted vision of Jesus that, you know, I use the example that eclipses the horizon. I just become so large. I, I can't think of anything outside of Jesus that I might know him, power of his resurrection, as Paul says. I mean, all of that stuff is key. Thanks so much, John. And join us here again tomorrow for Back to the Bible Canada as we continue in our series, Reasons to Believe, and look at John chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. That's right here, Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The regular gifts of our partner to tell monthly partners have become the very backbone to sustain the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada. Programs that reach out to every demographic using every possible medium, teaching the truth of God's Word that speaks into every area and question of life. Partner to tell monthly partners are critical to the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada's daily Bible teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld. They support the ongoing ministry to young adults through In Doubt. They provide messages of hope and joy shared daily that point to Jesus through Laugh Again. And now your gifts will become increasingly important as Truth and Life Today reaches potentially millions of households offering biblical truth that engages culture. Thank you for all you do. And if you're interested in joining the ranks of Partner to Tell Partners, 
Do so today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.